Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Well, to paraphrase Charles Dickens, this is the best of times, it's the worst of times. But mostly the worst of times. The best of times seems to be fading into the distant past, while the news of the day, every day, just seems to bring some new descent into disorder and madness. When you try to keep abreast of what's going on at home and abroad, it's hard not to feel that we're witnessing a sort of great unraveling of the fabric of society, even the fabric of reality itself. Everything seems to be under assault. Every truth, every good and beautiful thing about our culture, civility, order, tradition, our values, every pillar upholding the greatest civilization in history seems to be a target for the revolutionary left. Everywhere you look, you can see societal breakdown, cultural decay, the overthrow of anything and everything that was once considered normal and decent. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, or a Danny Downer, or whatever the male equivalent is, but our nation and our culture are in dire straits. One of the most frightening aspects of all this is that we've reached a point where our cultural elites are imposing anti-civilizational lies throughout our society and demanding that we accept these lies as new truths. We're up against a totalitarian agenda to reject fundamental universal truths and toe the party line on critical issues ranging from religious freedom, the nuclear family, the very definitions of male and female, you know the whole range of woke lies that we're now expected to conform to, we are at, I think, a unique civilizational watershed moment where the very nature of reality is in danger of being dismantled. The future will be determined by our determination, or lack thereof, to defend the true, the good, and the beautiful, and to uphold our Judeo-Christian morality, to speak the truth at any cost. One of the most important figures I can think of to address this great unraveling happens to be my guest today at The Right Take. He is an author and an academic who is a unique and very prolific writer and educator with a brand new book addressing what he calls the lies of our time. So I'm looking forward to bringing him on to explore and explain these dark times and offer some hope and solutions. So stay tuned and don't miss this conversation. And let me say, as always, please take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already so that you can keep up with the great conversations we're having here with important thinkers, writers, pundits, scholars, and storytellers. And if you like what you hear, a positive review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and don't touch that dial. Welcome back to The Right Take, everybody. I'm going to try not to embarrass myself or my guest today by gushing too much about him because I'm a big fan. Anthony Esselin is the Distinguished Professor of Humanities at Thales College. He's written over 30 books, quite a few of which I have and cannot recommend highly enough. I'm going to mention quickly just a few of those titles. Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture is one of them. Defending Boyhood, uh, No Apologies, Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men, and his brand new one called The Lies of Our Time, from the title alone, you can tell just how timely and urgent uh, that book is. He's one of the sanest, most eloquent and inspirational voices in America committed to the defense of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Anthony Esselin, welcome to the Right Take podcast. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. 
Anthony, you write about so many different aspects of our culture that I'm not sure where to begin picking your brain about them uh, and getting your take on our current civilizational distress. So I guess I'm just going to jump around with my questions a bit. Before we get into your new book, I would like to ask you about an article that you wrote for Crisis Magazine last week called Our Unhappy Youth. You write that many young people appear to have fallen into the most anti-human way of life that any civilization has ever settled into. Could you elaborate a little on that? Yeah, uh, I, 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 I'm. Everybody is seeing the statistics regarding contempl- uh, the young people contemplating suicide, uh, young people who report themselves as depressed uh, on on antidepressants, and I'm not talking here about people in their 30s and their 20s. I'm talking about little children, right? Um, and uh, of course, I mean I. I know I remember what it was like to have troubles when you were a little kid, uh, to, to um, sometimes even be quite lonely. Uh, but I, th- I, I ask myself, well, it, maybe the question was badly put. Uh, if we ask, why are these children unhappy? We, we should ask, well, what the heck is there in their lives that they have to be happy about? Um, and once you put it that way, you say, my gosh, can they be happy about uh, so many of them can be, they be happy about their family lives. No, they can't, because family lives are, are uh, blown to smithereens. They are growing up without a married mother and father. Uh, they may be uh, the victims of their parents' desire to divorce. Um, there may be a steady stream of uh, boyfriends or girlfriends coming into the house. Uh, it's That's nothing to be happy about. They're likely to... These days, they're likely to be in small families. They may be only children. Um, and if they're only children, it's not as in my wife's day that, that they would, even though they were, my wife was an only child, but she had 43 first cousins. And uh, many of them she saw all the time. Um, I'm one of four. I had 39 first cousins, 20 of whom lived in my small town. And I saw them and played with them all the time. We don't have that either. Um, then, then what's, what's to be happy about there? Uh, they're spending most of their time indoors. So they're removed from the natural world. Um, and, uh, that, that is soul stifling. They go to school, uh, they, they don't get introduced at school to things that are beautiful and good and true. Um, it's one bit of political nastiness after another, uh, you know, and then they're online and uh, social media is a wonderful place to grow antisocial and sick. Uh, I mean, it's it's it may be important for certain purposes for certain adults, but for kids to be on it is a disaster. Uh, what's to be happy about? And then they, in the schools themselves are not likely to be terribly personal places. You've got uh, hundreds or even, you know, well over a thousand kids warehoused in one gigantic place that's a recipe for anonymity and uh social pathologies what the heck is there and it, they don't many of them are raised without uh belief in god so they have no uh they have no congregation no no feeling of a family or a home there at least once a week what's to make somebody happy and you put it that way you say why well why do we live this way this is insane why do we live this way because we bought a whole lot of untruths, one thing, that we bought a whole lot of lies. 
Yeah. You, speaking of education, you're an educator, and education has obviously become a very fierce battleground now between parents and ideologues who seem hell-bent on driving a wedge between those parents and their children. You have a book called Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture, in which you write that uh, there are only two things wrong with our schools, everything that our children don't learn there and everything they do. Could you talk about what our kids should be learning? Okay. Uh, I should have added a third thing wrong with the schools. Oh, and the social life. The social life is extraordinarily dysfunctional and antisocial. Um, and all you need to do to determine that is to look at their faces. Uh, I could tell among my college freshmen, I could tell at a glance um, which, which few of uh, a class of 100 or so students which few had been homeschooled or had gone to, uh, 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 say, an all-boys Catholic school. I mean, they were the ones who looked up. They were the ones who looked like young people. Everybody else looked like uh, they had a dark cloud over their heads every minute of the day. Um, what, the, the students, uh, what the students don't learn there in, in the schools, well, it should get me started. Uh, if, when it comes to English, for instance, they don't learn grammar. Uh, as a systematic and coherent whole. They learn it as um, a, a, a grab bag of rules that have no relation to one another, and half the time the rules are wrong at that. Um, they don't learn, uh, they don't study poetry written before 1900, um, so this huge treasure house of, of literature is shut to them. And, and we're talking also about poems that can be read in a couple of minutes and be with you your whole life long. Instead, uh, literature is suborned for political purposes. So instead of, instead of reading uh, literature about uh, the world around them, about, about love, uh, even religious poetry, uh, they, they, um, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, uh I don't want to rag on To Kill a Mockingbird, which is a great book, but it, it's 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 that and things that are m much less well written, uh, much more politically tendentious all the time, all the time. Um, the, the the message that people get from it is that you know uh, people are people are bad, especially their own country. Their own country is bad. Um, their sex is bad if you're male. There's no redeeming it unless you become feminist. Uh, and uh, I don't know what's there to cheer the heart. Um, nothing, nothing. That's that's just it's English. Is go. Yeah, I mean, we could go through all the subjects there. Uh, the, what they do learn is uh, they learn to despise their own forebears. Um, they learn a whole lot of things that aren't true about history. For instance, they, they pick up the idea that before Columbus, everybody believed that the earth was flat. That's nonsense. Um, they'll pick up the belief that religion is always suspect and is the source of most human wars. Uh, the reverse is, is true. Very few wars in the history of the human race have had anything to do with religion outside of Islam. Um, and a brief period in which Christian uh, churches fought against each other um, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Almost no uh, religious wars exist, right? But, you know, they, there's one thing after another after another. Um, uh, and 
what what's left you know uh what's left is you got these poor young people who are wrecks um they've they've been taught a lot of despising unless the thing in question is unnatural um and then they're taught maybe to celebrate it but in general um they're, they're taught to look down uh, especially on the past. Everything that came from the past is to be despised. Along those lines, I love this quote from um, your book, Out of the Ashes. You write, quote, if people have always said it, it is probably true. It is the distilled wisdom of the ages. If people have not always said it, but everybody is saying it now, it is probably a lie. It is the concentrated madness of the moment, unquote. When I look around at the concentrated madness of our culture today, things look pretty bad. They look overwhelmingly bad. This is kind of a big question, but how do we reclaim a culture that values the true, the good, and the beautiful? Where and how do we go about making Western civilization great again? Uh, yeah, the money question. Um, we, uh, well, it, I don't know whether it's come to that or not, but we may someday have to resign ourselves to a reality that uh, our civilization, that Western civilization is effectively gone um, or that American culture has ceased to exist. Uh, it, it, this will be um, uh, the, the, a people without a culture will be a new thing in the, in the history of the world. Um, a challenge that man has never had to face because uh People have always uh, passed along from one generation to the next the things that they cherish the most, their songs, their um, uh, the, the heroes that they honor, uh, their holy days, their common worship, um, their habits of everyday life, their, 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 their cooking, their tilling the fields and so forth. That's been a, a you can't have been human and lack that. But now you can lack that. We're, we're rich enough and technologically sophisticated enough um, to get through our years without uh, cultural heritage. And our schools are doing their best and our political, uh, political arena is doing its best to eviscerate culture. Um, so we will have to do something that's uh, actually rather awkward, uh, a new thing. We, we, ha we may have to establish culture from the beginning is deliberate act. Um, and the churches have to be centrally involved in this uh, for the good of mankind and for the good of individual souls, both. Um, and churches that don't see this, and I think none of the churches right now really see this, um, the, the churches that don't see this will be, uh, will be cutting off their own lifeblood because when you are seeking to save individual people, uh, to save human beings, you really do want them to be fully human to begin with. Um, and if they're lacking something that has always been central to human nature, um, the, the, you're, um, you may have to build up that human nature as, a, as a, a, something that's preparatory. To uh, to religious faith itself, it's a strange way to 
to think of these things. We've never had to think of them that way before. We may require deliberate actions. Establishment of new schools is part of it, obviously. Establishment of, of uh, communities. Um, and uh, it will, I'm, I'm afraid it will have to involve rejection of a lot of what we take for granted as part of everyday life. Um, get the rid of those screens when it comes to kids and throw them outside. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of religion and faith, I would be greatly surprised if you didn't agree with me that our nation is engaged in spiritual warfare. Uh, I think we're at a disadvantage in that conflict because I think we've gone from being a secular culture to being a neo-pagan culture. Um, what can Americans do? You you touched on this a moment ago. What can Americans or churches do to restore our declining faith uh, as a nation and as a civilization for that matter? Because Christianity, I think, is in decline pretty much all over the Western world, at least in terms of attendance, church attendance. What, what can churches do to restore that kind of faith that, uh, you know, resulted in the civilization that we used to call Christendom? Okay, so um, first of all, I would say that um, uh, if we think of what's going on now as a reversion to paganism, such as characterized kind of paganism that you would find in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, uh, uh, my response would be, my gosh, if only that were true. Um, because, well, you know, the, the, the paganism of ancient Rome, you, you may uh, know that the word paganos in ancient Rome met redneck, uh, hillbilly. Um, the, those people in the countryside who were so unsophisticated as to keep hold of their household gods, which were the gods of their soil, the soil that they tilled. They were attached to the land, um, and this was part of their religion. They were attached to the tutelary gods of, of that land, that particular land that they tilled. Um, they were the hardest for the, the Christians to convert because they were the most stuck in their ways. If it's that kind of paganism we're talking about, um, that's, at re that's at least something human. But we are now getting a paganism that combines the, uh, the very worst of, of uh, paganism with the worst of, of uh, secularism. That is a worship of... Uh, a worship of the state as God and in tandem with it, the so-called, the pseudo-liberation of the self, um, which is usually expressed these days in terms of uh, uh, sexual predilections. So we get the three-poisoned God of self, sex, and state. Um, and th this is not, this is not just inimical to Christianity. This is inimical to being human, uh, I, I would say. So the churches, um, the churches need to reestablish uh, a fundamental basis of what it means to be a human being. To be a human being is not to be, on the one hand, an ant in a collective governed by bureaucrats and their management systems from far away, while you express a pseudo individuality uh, through your uh, through your you know your sexual peculiarities, whatever they may be, that's not to be a fully human being. Um, to be a fully human being is to be social in the full sense to to have to do with your neighbors, um, your family, 
to get together with them regularly to seek the common good in your own locales, um, to uh, uh, honor those who went before you because they still are part, an intimate part of your society, um, to uh, recognize and honor and be grateful for all things good and true and beautiful, especially those that you've inherited from the past. I mean, this is what this is what any genuinely human culture does before we're even talking about Christianity. Um, the churches, I think, need to uh, be uh, open eyed about the necessity of reestablishing that. That means, as a practical matter, that the churches are going to have to get much better at um, uh, teaching everybody in the church, including the young people, all the churches should have schools, teaching them um, in a very broad sense, the humanities. Uh, and I'm talking about going back 4,000 years, 3,000 years. Um, not just, uh, you know, some current events and a Shakespeare player to once or twice and um, otherwise, uh, you know, uh, young adult fiction which is usually miserable, and political novels of the 20th century. Um, if, it, if that's it, forget it. They might as well go to be public school. If you're going to make your kids unhappy and stupid, you might as well do it for free. <laughs> shift gears slightly and ask you <clears throat> excuse me, about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, uh, and that is the state of masculinity in America today. Uh, first, let me ask you about your book, Defending Boyhood. We've touched on this a little bit already in discussing what we're doing wrong and right with children, but what are we doing wrong in America today, especially or specifically with boys who are, I think we could all agree, are in crisis today? What are we not giving boys that they need in their education, in their socialization, uh, in their spiritual guidance, boys specifically. Could you speak to that? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, this is part of my book, The Lies of Our Time, too, because one of the lies is that there's no difference um, between uh, boys and girls and men and women, which, of course, is insane. No human culture has ever believed that because human beings actually have this funny desire to survive from one generation to the next. And you're not going to do that if you buy any nonsense that the sexes are the same, right? Reality will intrude, you'll die, um, and the earth will be rid of you and your nonsense. Uh, what are we not giving boys? Well, first of all, a lot of them don't have a father in the home, okay? And that's, that, that's a crime that cries out for, uh, uh, for being addressed. And, and still our churches generally want, are, are timid about this because we don't want... We don't want to offend uh, mothers whose husbands have dumped them, okay? Um, those are people who need all our help. And, you know, we got to make the best of a very bad situation. And that's going to mean that our, you'll have a lot of people, uh, single mothers who have born children out of wedlock. There's no father around. Um, it's a dreadful thing. Uh, you don't want to make them feel worse than they might already feel. But you've got to do something about this, right? Um, the, the feelings of the adults in question have to come second or third or fourth. What's most important 
uh, is the welfare of the children. Now, if you ask specifically about boys, um, both boys and girls need fathers. Boys need fathers in a particular way. Um, they, they model for them what it means to be a man. Uh, what do you do with this excess energy that you have? What do you do with this bodily strength? When, when you, a boy is 12 years old and finds out that he is now stronger than his mother, his mother can no longer physically restrain him. What's up then? All bets are off then. Um, uh, what do you do with that? How do you relate to girls? Um, boys are given no guidance in any of these things. And uh, when it comes to the stuff that's actually taught them in schools, uh, it'd be very rare, I think, to find a school in which uh, at least some of the literature is set aside as, you know, this is sort, sort of thing that boys would really enjoy reading about. Um, instead, it's, uh, you know, look at the girl hero here, look at the girl hero there. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of it is just nonsense even at that. Um, so that, you know, they're, they're, they're not given what they need for their minds, for their spirits. They're not even given what they needed for their bodies. Uh, they, they can't sit still um, for six hours straight. Uh, you give them 20 minutes for lunch. They, 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 need, they need to get rid of that excess energy. You got to give them an hour. Give them an hour for lunch and let them play. And don't worry if they get rough. So long as nobody breaks a bone, it's okay. Um, leave them the heck alone. Uh, and they'll invent their own games and let them police themselves. Boys have done that ever since there have been boys. Uh, but no, they have to be hovered over. Um, and they're uh, they're they're kept from uh, natural expressions of their boyish nature, and they're let to know in subtle and then in explicit ways that their very sex is something to be ashamed of, unless unless they become effeminate, and then we can throw a party for them. But if they're just ordinary boys wanting to do ordinary boyish things, then we loathe them. Um, they pick up on it, and of course, that's a recipe for resentment and uh, sometimes bad boomerang effects. My gosh, um, they, they've got these bodies; they, they, they're, they're growing to be strong in, in in muscle and bone. Give them something to do. Give them um, give them something construction constructed to do. You want an art room for boys? One boys' school that I know uh, stacks it with uh, power tools. Um, big beams of wood, hammers, nails, other kinds of things. I say, go, go to it here. Get a carpenter there. Teach the boys how to use the, the, uh, the tools, how to hammer nail, uh, and, uh, let them make things. You know? I think, I think if, if, uh, if we put our heads together, it wouldn't take us very long to devise ways to make school, uh, at least palatable for these kids. It wouldn't take long. What's we it, we do know what that what would cause them to thrive, but we would face all kinds of resistance because some people have vested interests in seeing that they don't thrive, um, and, and others would just be threatened by it. Um, anyway, that's one of the lies of our of our time. Men men and women are exactly the same. That um, makes no sense. No culture believed anything. Nonsense. Yeah, I, I don't want to neglect your new book, uh, The Lies of Our Time. You, in it, you identify eight lies such as uh, there is no God, uh, there is no objective moral truth, human nature does not exist, 
There's no such thing as beauty. Uh, I don't want to give them all away, but let's, let me talk about that last one or ask you about that last one. The modern world seems to have been waging a sort of war on beauty for many decades now. Why is beauty so important to human flourishing? Oh, Bali. Uh, you know, we can go back to Plato here and and uh, his his uh, allegory that that he gives in the Phaedrus, the allegory of the soul as a charioteer with a team of horses, two horses, one noble, the other wayward. Um, the the uh, wayward uh, horse wants to satisfy its gratify its appetite, uh, its appetite for food, drink, sex, etc. The, the noble horse, though, um, is inspired by uh, the vision of beauty that the charioteer himself sees, the reason sees. And this is the noble horse, this spiritless drive that um, keeps, usually manages to keep the wayward horse on the right path in check, Okay. Uh, and uh, C.S. Lewis saw it and wrote about it in the book, The Abolition of Man. You've got to train people up in a, um, a love for beauty um, to, to, to uh, see what is genuinely noble, um, beautiful, whether it's a human deed that's noble or, or, or the beauty of uh, a poem or a work of art or the world around us, a waterfall, uh, a sonnet by Shakespeare, um, Dante's Divine Comedy, whatever it is, okay, uh, that that it's it's through that noble horse, or what Lewis called the chest, that the reason orders the appetites. But if you don't uh, inspire people with this uh, with this love for what is grand, noble, beautiful. What you get instead is the head seeking out ways to procure gratification for the belly. Men with no chests, right? Um, The head in service of the belly or the groin, um, rather than the head governing the belly and the groin by means of that middle term, um, which uh, the spirit, which is is motivated by a, uh, 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 a desire to be one with something that is beautiful. Um, it, you, you, can, uh, you can reason all day long um, and still not win somebody over when uh, maybe if they hear box cantata Jesu mina Freude for the first time. They're so overwhelmed by its simplicity and its complexity, its beauty, its surprises, its uh, coming to complete and perfect resolution. Um, it takes their breath away and they say, there must be something to this. Um, you win them over not by rational argument. Uh, you can 
logic will get, you can get somebody to agree to a logical conclusion and then they go and behave as they behaved anyhow. It doesn't seem to have any effect. But if you move them by means of beauty, then they say, well, now let me think this through. And um, uh, the, the appeal is not to the appetite, but to the reason, to the intellect, uh, through an experience of beauty. And that's what young people, especially you know, I mean, the younger they are, the more that this should be true. They should be instructed to um, feel what are rationally appropriate feelings for things of beauty, whether they are human actions or works of art or natural uh, phenomena like a field of snow or a bird um, on a branch, right? And our schools neglect almost all of that. Um, the modern world seems to have been on a crusade against beauty. Uh, we build, we are rich and we build the ugliest buildings that man has ever uh, built on the face of the earth. We don't have to, but we do. I was in um, a nearby village here across the border into Vermont. I won't name the village. It has some plenty of in its town square and its main street. It has plenty of old buildings from the early 1900s and the 1800s that are really handsome. They're pleasant to look at. They're, they're, they're lovely. Um, old post office, no longer used as such, an old bank, an old department store. Um, then when you go behind the main street, you find their new arts center. Their new arts center. And it's the ugliest building in town. It's, 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 it's drab. Uh, it's awkward. It's incoherent. It manages to be drab and garish at the same time. It's just an ugly building. I don't think anybody in town would disagree with me there. It's, it's an ugly building. You wouldn't want to go to town to see that. You want to go to town to see the other buildings. But why don't we build beautiful things? It's a, it's a fascinating question. Perhaps we don't believe build beautiful things because we've been taught that there is no such thing as beauty. And, uh, you know, the, the, less, the less human we are, the more we lose of our, our natural humanity, the less able we will be to um, either produce be- works of beauty or to appreciate them. And that may be a secret thing that nobody wants to acknowledge that's behind the decline of church participation. We are, we are talking about also the decline of participation in everything that's human. Um, right? So uh, I hope that answers some of the questions. And by the way, there's our web magazine that is devoted to just this task. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. You, you publish a, a web magazine called Word and Song about language, poetry, music, uh, classic films. Can you explain to people what that's all about and uh, what you hope to do with it? Uh, yeah, well, um, see, uh, in, in Out of the Ashes, I argued that sometimes because there's everything to do, okay, uh, it, it, it uh, makes it easier on you because you don't have to worry about your work being of no use 
seeing that everything is to be done, it also means that if you can do anything, you should do it. Okay. Uh, and here is one of the things that my wife and I, my wife, Deborah and I can do, and we are doing, um, so, so how to reintroduce people, uh, to, uh, the classical hymns of the Christian heritage, uh, hymns that go back 1600 years, but also, uh, gospel hymns, revival hymns from the, uh, from the late 1800s, hymns of, from a wide variety of sources, but real hymns, not garbage, um, most people now have never sung these. A lot of people go to church for their whole lives and never sing, um, never sing any number of the very greatest and most moving and beautiful Christian hymns that we've ever had uh, in English. Okay. Um, so there's that. I mean, there, there are people who like movies, but um, the classic movies from Hollywood's golden age, they're not familiar with or they need to be reminded about. So we do uh, a classic film once a week. Poetry especially is is foreign to people now. And that marks us out as weird in the history of the human race because poetry is the universal art. It's the most popular. In, in, in a thriving human culture, it's the most popular of all arts. People, people sing songs, okay, in an ordinary human culture. Um, people... Uh, memorialize great deeds in ballads, even in epics. And they pass these things down from one generation to the next, sometimes even without the assistance of the written word. They pass it down orally. Okay. Well, we uh, have a poem of the week. We are introducing people um, to, to uh, great poetry in their own language. And um, not, you know, it's, we're not talking about stuff that you need an advanced degree to understand. We're, we're talking about stuff that was really meant to be read by, by the people and was, and was in fact read by ordinary people and treasured by them. And we have popular song of, uh, uh, of the week, sometimes a song. Um, my wife, Deborah introduces people to the greats from, uh, from the, usually from the mid century, the early 20th century, of popular American music, the great American songbook, uh, the big bands, um, Frank Sinatra and uh, others among the crooners and uh, songs from uh, Broadway musicals, um, folk songs, uh, you know, all kinds of things that used to be part of our heritage. You know, communities themselves, ordinary little towns used to have their own choirs, people getting together just for the fun of singing. Um, and uh, that's almost that's almost a, a dead thing now. But it, it's it's like a, a human limb that has ceased to function. It, you know, it's it's atrophied. Um, but we're trying to, you know, reintroduce people to those, too. Uh, also language. So there's um, a word of the week every week, which usually kind of gives the theme for the week. Um, and I, because I love language and show people where this word in English comes from or where the, the phrase comes from. And uh, all these things are meant to be whimsical, delightful, moving. Uh, and we, it's, it's, it's a lot of work for us, but it's also a joy. 
and uh, people tell us, you know, you, you really brighten our days. It's what we can do. Uh, another, let me get back to your book, uh, The Lies of Our Time, um, before I forget. Another lie that you identify is that cultural progress is inevitable. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people today talk about being on the right side of history, or they talk about the moral arc of the universe bending toward justice. Um, but does it do that? Are we evolving morally? Uh, you know, it. Uh, if, if you look at the history of the human race, um, you may, if you were optimistic, see a very, very gradual, a very general trend towards uh, mercy, humanity, uh, an enlightened uh, interest in the common good rather than in your own private interest. But if it's there, it's very general. It's we're talking about an arc that's visible only at a great distance. And it implies nothing at all about where you happen to be in your own particular civilization at your own particular time. Um, nothing is more common in the history of civilizations than decline, right? I mean, there are, it's one of the things you learn from history is that there are periods of cultural, social, political, civilizational decline, right? Um, the the great age, I mean, just to take one of the arts, right? The great age of Roman poetry uh, ends um, with the death of Augustus Caesar, maybe shortly after that. It, it comes to an end. Then there is some really good poetry of the second rank um, that pretty much comes to an end at the beginning of the second century AD. Um, I mean, it, the art goes into decline. It never again reaches the height that it had reached during the Augustan age. That's just a fact. Um, that's just one little thing. One thing, the, the art of poetry. Engineering continued to advance in ancient Rome. But then with the attacks of the Vandals and the, um, the Goths and so forth and the, um, the overtaking of the Roman Empire in the West by Gothic chieftains, um, engineer, engineering progress not only comes to a halt, but uh, uh, there's a lot of forgetting, there's a lot of losing of what was once known. Uh, people in Italy in the in the 800s could not build the aqueducts that the romans had built before um and if if you say well you know that that's possible then but it can't happen now i say you got to be kidding um it's right here in our midst it's right here in our midst if if you take uh t take one of the arts and and i can show you that in fact there is nobody alive or almost nobody alive um, who even knows the kinds of skills that were needed to produce that work of art 150 years ago or 300 years ago. The, the very skills have been lost. So um, it's not just that we don't build a Chartres Cathedral built in the Middle Ages. It's that we don't even know what we would need to know in order to build it let alone feel what we would need to feel to want to build it. 
so you know, there's all kinds, all kinds of sagging, all kinds of decline. Um, this isn't this is a normal feature of human history, and to pretend that it doesn't exist because we happen to have television, uh, and uh, the combustion engine is to be, you know, a fool. To be a fool, it's, it's silly. Is there one particular lie in your book? the lies of our time that you think maybe most urgently needs to be refuted, maybe more so than the others. Yeah. Well, the basic lie um, is that there is no God. Okay. Um, if you deny the existence of God, I think I, I understand that there are plenty of uh, atheists who disagree with me on this, um, but I'm willing to push them hard on it. Then if, if, if there is no God, then I think that we can conclude with uh, Dostoevsky's character, Ivan, if there is no God, then all things are permissible. Um, the, if there is no God, then there, don't talk to me about, um, about why good should oblige me. Okay? Even if I recognize in a certain reduced sense that something may be good. I do not recognize that I am obliged to follow it. What, what, what is it about it um, that should command my allegiance, especially if uh, my allegiance would imply self-sacrifice? Um, if there is no God, then practically speaking, there won't be any moral vision. Instead, what rushes in to take its place will be uh, uh, to, to manage the chaos that's immediately in the offing, because there will be chaos in men's souls. But to manage that chaos, what rushes in to take the place, can't take the place, is uh, social control of various sorts, tyrannical sorts, from government and government-like uh, bodies. Um, so that people are less and less free, more and more suspicious of one another, less free in any practical sense, even as they boast about their liberty because they think they think they've thrown over um, the obligations that religion placed them under. Um, when the main commandment in various forms was, "Thou shalt be a fully human being." Um, and uh, so, well, well, no, we don't want that. If, if to be a fully human being means that I need to acknowledge the, the existence of God and, his, um, and the duty I have to honor him, to worship him, to obey him, if, if, that, if that's the term of my freedom, then I'd rather be a libertarian slave. Um, but that's what you end up with. You end up with you end up with a, a kind of slavery that was boggled the minds of our of our founding fathers. Dr. Esselin, how can people best follow you and keep up with your writing and commentary and all the different things that you're undertaking? Well, uh, the best way these days, I think, is to um, join up with Word and Song. Uh, available on Substack, go to wordandsong.com. Um, there will be, uh, you'll find it, just Word and Song. Or anthonyesselin.com. My wife is responding to me back here, uh, um, telling me how to find myself. Uh. <laughs>
Well, thank you, sir. Thank you, Anthony Esselin, for making the time to come on The Right Take. To paraphrase something that you wrote in Out of the Ashes, what we had built before can be built again. And people like you give me hope that we can do it. So keep up the great work, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Listeners, don't forget to check out the new book, The Lies of Our Time, and anything else you can get your hands on by Anthony Esselin. Thank you for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe to The Right Take so you can keep up with all the important conversations we're having here. And again, if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.